Hey there, Coyote Hearts. Welcome back to another episode of The Spiritual Gaze. I'm one of your hosts, Angel. And I'm your other host, Brandon. And this is our twice-monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the wide reaches of spirituality without pretending that it all makes sense. Twice-moonthly podcast. Well, there are two moons a month. There's yes. actually a moon every day. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> but you know, the it new moon and the full moon, the, the biggies. Exactly. Or the skinnies. Yeah. So this is technically your full moon podcast because we're actually recording this um, on the eve of the Virgo full moon. Which explains why we reorganized our sock drawer yesterday. Oh, and it felt so good and it, it really looks did. so good. I know it does. It's so organized. Oh, and my shirt's drawer. I redid that. Yeah, we've entered into our pre-spring cleaning. Yes, but it'll end Sunday when the moon shifts into Libra. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's introduce ourselves. I'll go first. Please do. I'm Brandon Alter. I am a non-binary queer spirit healer, tarot reader, astrologer, songwriter, and uh, healer of all kinds. Oh, go on. Nope, that's it. (laughs) And yourself? I'm Angel Lopez. I am a producer, a film producer, a writer, uh, an astrologer. And a teacher, healer, queeler of metaphysical practices. I was listening to a podcast, which I do sometimes. And it was a podcast that was about speed dating. And just like you have seven minutes to like introduce yourself to a stranger and like what subjects would you avoid and what subjects would you like lean into. And I was thinking about the fact that like if I were speed dating, not that I would ever be speed dating at this point in my life. I would have no idea like what to lead with. Like, I don't know how I would, because most of the time people like try to categorize you based on like what you do, but you also shouldn't like talk about like religion. And so I feel like to tell people that I'm an astrologer or like a he, like I, I just got me thinking about what are the key things that I use to solidify my identity. Right. And I was just kind of the like shrug emoji to myself. I was like, I don't know what those things are, which I think on one hand is like good that I don't have any like tent poles for my identity. Like the way I consider myself is based on how I feel and less on like what I am. But I felt like, wow, I would really suck at speed dating. Who can say? Let's role play. Okay. All right. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. How's it going? Say what? I'm Angel. Oh, hi. I'm Brandon. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. How's it going? It's going great. This is a cool place. Yeah, you look very nice. Thank you. You look really outfit. Thank you. You look really nice yourself. Oh, thank you. I like your jewelry. Oh, thanks. It belonged to my late husband. Oh, really? Yeah, but we won't talk about that. Okay, yeah. That's quite a that's quite a thing to drop. Tell me about you. Oh, um, well, what do you want to know? You know, like what defines you? Um, well, I really love nature and animals. Mm-hmm. I'm like a big animal person. Cute. Do you have pets? I don't have any pets right now, but I have like a retirement dream where I have like a bunch of like alpacas and a bunch of dogs that hopefully would get along with the alpacas. Oh, that's sweet. Like I want to be like one of those like old ranch ladies that have like a bunch of dogs and a bunch of alpacas and like maybe even some chickens. 
So is this like a retirement plan or would you have some sort of business attached to it? I don't think I would have some sort of business attached unless I needed to in order to like keep it going. Like Julia from The Real Housewives of Miami. Do you watch The Real Housewives? I mean, of course I do. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, you know, she's got that business that helps her keep her farm going. Yeah. So I guess that's that's one way that I define myself. Nice. Yeah. What about yourself? How do you define yourself? Well, I'm a film producer, a writer, an astrologer. Oh, wow. Okay. And a metaphysical, um, like a healer and a teacher of metaphysical practices. So you believe in all that stuff? Yeah. Oh. Well, not so much film, but I believe <laughs> in everything else. And scene. <laughs> Okay, well, that was actually a useful exercise. I think what it taught me was that I'd be terrible. Yeah, I'm the one who'd really be terrible. <laughs> but you'd be very good because because immediately somebody would be like, "Oh, you're in film," and they'd be like very attracted to you. Possibly. Whereas, like all I've like, but like I've I've given that like I love nature and animals. You know what I mean? I know, which is beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah, that's a great kickoff. Yeah, that is a good kickoff. See, it, it also made me think maybe I want to like volunteer at, like a dog rescue once a week. Hmm. I like that. Because I'm really missing dog energy, but we're just like not ready to get a new dog. But I, like I was walking to my friend's house today and there were these like three dogs who were from the neighbor across the street and they were like these tiny, and one was very old. They were just like these little scrappy, yappy dogs and they were like very aggressive. Like they kept like coming towards me and barking and I was just like, hi, you guys. <laughs> I was just <laughs> so in love with them. But then yeah. also like worried for them because they were not collared. And even though their owner came out and like brought them back in an hour later when I left my friend's house, they were just like back in the street. And then when I like drove away, they like got out of the way of my car. But then I like looked in my side view mirror and then they were just like laying in the street again. And I was just like, these dogs, I'm sure they're fine, but. But yeah, I would, I would worry. Even. I just want to save all the dogs. See, I don't know if you'd be good in an animal rescue because it would might be just break your heart. Every day. I know, but it might break my heart open. No, that's true. And at least I would feel like I was doing good, you know? Yeah. I um, would volunteer at an animal rescue. Um, this was years and years ago. And I did really love it. Like, you know, I would just go and walk yeah, dogs take them for walks on my lunch and break. And it was so fun. It was like fun, all of their different personalities. Was that the Amanda Foundation? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Any hoodle. <laughs> Uh, coyote hearts. That's what you called everybody at the beginning of the episode. And here we are talking about dogs. I know we can't avoid them. I had that, this like amazing experience with a coyote this morning, just like outside our window. It was like literally outside our living room window at like nine this morning. And we just kind of like had a little bit of a like stare off with each other, but we like settled into it and we were just kind of like gazing into each other's eyes. I mean, they really have gorgeous eyes. They're gorgeous. I mean, I'm upset. Yeah, I wish I could beautiful animal. have a pet coyote, honestly, but I know they're wild. So yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't do and that. And you'd have to feed it things you wouldn't want to have to feed it. Like steak? Like chicken? <laughs> I guess. I mean, I can feed a chicken. That's true. I guess they would probably. I don't think you're supposed to have a pet coyote. I think that's very bad. No, but I know there are people who have like animals that are like half coyote. Oh, cool. <laughs> I saw a coyote the morning of my birthday Oh right I remember that When you had me move my car and it was yeah. like early And so I just like was like half asleep And when I parked my car at the end of the driveway So you could get out there was a coyote right there It was my so birthday amazing. coyote Yeah so we're like a little over a week Into your 39th year How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good about it Yay! I had such an amazing birthday Yeah. If you've been following us via the podcast for some time You know that 
My birthday has not always been a moment of joy for me. Uh, in the past, I would use my birthday almost like unconsciously as like a day to be like really hard on myself and just kind of notice where I wasn't measuring up. But I don't know, probably around my 30th birthday, I just decided like I have to take responsibility for this day and I have to celebrate it. So for whatever reason, I woke up last Thursday on my birthday and I just felt like a lightness and I meditated in bed and I pulled some cards and I listened to these voicemails that my mom left me right before she passed. They're just like these very sweet very sacred voicemails and I hadn't listened to them in, in a really long time. So obviously I was like kind of like weeping in bed, but it was nice to just kind of like face the sadness, like first thing as opposed to looking over my shoulder the whole day and like wondering when it was going to visit me. So I just kind of like got it out of the way or just like made it part of the day as opposed to trying to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And then I did this amazing ritual where I like, Instead of doing Pilates or going for a run, I just did 39 sun salutations plus one for good luck, one for obviously each year of my life, and then one for the next year that I hopefully get. And as I was doing each of those sun salutations, I would just like say out loud which number it was so that I wouldn't lose count. But it also made me think about like that year of my life. And obviously I can't remember every year of my life. And at a certain point, I think like certain events get a little like muddy or like, was that when I was 23 or like 24 or 20? But it was just interesting, like what was coming through the things that I was remembering. And really, it was just like the feeling of gratitude, like just a overwhelming full bodied sense of just gratitude that a I've lived to be 39, that I'm healthy and well enough to do 40 sun salutations. It just was a really beautiful way to start the day. That sounds awesome. So I recommend that to anybody as a little birthday ritual. And I think I'm going to adopt that. And if I can just like, I mean, if I'm like 75 years old and I can do 75 sun salutations, like, wow, like I'm really, I'm really killing it. Yeah, seriously. So obviously if you've never like done yoga before, like, please do not just like, like work into it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't hurt yourself. Anyhow, I guess that's kind of like rolling into a check-in, but yeah, I'm feeling very I feel like, uh, well, it was funny. I threw a birthday party. Angel co-hosted this birthday party because a lot of the work relied on him. And at the end of the party, it was just Angel and myself and our good friend, Lori Liu. Shout out to Lori Liu, who always listens to the podcast. And we were opening presents, and she had given me this card that uh, was this really beautiful card of like a crow coming out of like a tunnel um, moving like towards a white hot light. And she said that she had had that card for a long time and she just for some reason felt like that was the card to give me. And in the card and Lori too saying out loud that like she felt as though I was like moving out of a dark tunnel towards the light this year. And at the very moment she said that, the Casey Musgrave song, There is a Light at the End of the Tunnel and literally that lyric like came on. I mean, we were listening to music, but it was just like Lori saying that and then it like immediately coming on. And I was just like, this is true. Like, this is real. Like, I am coming out of like a very dark, long, you know, basically like two year tunnel of like death and sadness and grief and illness and heaviness and darkness. And and I don't think that means that I'm not going to have bad days or like, you know, be haunted by my grief. But I do feel like a, a shuffling off of some sort of heaviness. So that's where I'm at. That's exciting. Yeah, it feels it's good. nice to see the light. 
Is it? Do you see it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely see a lightness in you. Oh, well, good. But it's nice to hear that you are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'm feeling it. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right, fine. I don't know if I'm seeing a light, but I'm <laughs> feeling a light. Uh, that's fair. What about you? What was it like to celebrate my birthday? Was it everything you could hope for and more? It was. It was a great time. It was a good time. Yeah. It was a, um, I won't lie, it was a tiring week. <laughs> it involved a lot of moving parts. Yeah, well. And she's a demanding and, birthday bitch. She's a socializing queen. She's an so Aquarius goddess. It was a lot of socializing, which uh, takes a lot out of me. Um, so I was definitely like a little crashed out after and still feel like I'm like replenishing my energies. Um, but I had such a nice time also getting co- to connect with everyone that was a part of it. Well, good. I'm glad. All yeah. right. But that doesn't have to be your check-in. What What's going on? <laughs> what's going on with you? So have any of you out there ever felt like you are in the waiting room that exists between two versions of yourself? Like you can sense that you are growing out of a certain iteration of your life and just your whole inner sense of being. Um, but only have like real clarity and maybe some like bits of information and actual you know, parts of your reality that fit into this like new version that you're visioning for yourself. So you're just kind of like perched in a limbo in between. That's how I am right now. That's kind of how I feel. Like I'm like, I don't know, like I'm like Spider-Man climbing up in between two buildings, you know, like (laughs) inching my way up on either side. Um, Which Honestly, I think it's like a good place to be because I think like I've just been like curled up in a ball in the alley down below for quite some time. And at least now I'm like scaling the walls, you know. Oh, so you're out of the waiting room now. Well, I mean, the waiting room is, uh, you know, I'm mixing metaphors here. You Indeed. know, I'm just trying to I'm just trying <laughs> to keep track. No, I mean, the old version of life was the curled up in the ball, you know, like I think it was just like the end of that life. You know, I think I was like running, running, running towards something or from something and needed to take a break and curled up in a ball in an alley. And um, I guess maybe on some level too, there's like a seeing the light up above, right? That like comes with that. So I guess in some way I feel like I too am seeing a light, feeling a light uh, that I'm moving towards. Um, And that comes with days where I'm like enthusiastic and excited for the things that fill my life. And then it comes with days where I'm just a little, um, I'm not even a little, I'm extremely challenged by, uh, just the reality of my life. But I think it's just like, you know, I had very clear direction, um, up until like a couple years ago and a lot of the things that defined me kind of fell away like you know similar I guess to what you were talking about like what defines us right like 
you know, I am a writer, but I was like very heavily pursuing like my TV writing and my film writing and had really active projects. And then it all kind of like poofed for a while. So I was like, am I a writer? You know, I had a, you know, we had a beautiful dog, you know, and like I was a dog dad and like I woke up with like immediate sense of purpose because I was like, I have to get this dog out, you know, and like get him for a walk, get him to pee, you know, like get him some food, you know, like you have these like just immediacies of purpose that had gone away. And when you lose those definers in your life, it starts to leave you like feeling kind of amorphous, you know. So I think that's just like I'm now like coming out of that kind of blobby place and like trying to craft some new senses of self and I think senses of purpose, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I think some will look similar, but they're just going to like they'll have similar purpose. Like obviously I will be a dog dad again, but it's going to be very different. You know, I will be a TV writer again, but it's going to feel and look very different. So I think it's just moving into those spaces right now. Um, that's just interesting. Yeah. Well, I think purpose is definitely something you have to give yourself. Yeah. And I know that that's, that's such a popular question, especially like as people that give readings, people always come in there and like, I need to know what my purpose is. Like, what do the spirits say my purpose is? And the spirits can't tell you that. Like, only you can tell yourself that. Like, it's literally a gift you give yourself. And it can change. So I don't know if you're in, like, a waiting room. I mean, maybe you're waiting on yourself to, like, give yourself some purpose. Or maybe you're just, like, in a clearing. And that's a place where you're able to just discern for yourself, like, what is the next horizon you want to move towards? Yeah, I think it's, like, looking at... It's a, it's like if I'm in a waiting room, there's like seven doors, you know, oh. and recognizing that like I actually get to choose which door to go through. Yeah. So, yeah, to what you're saying, yeah, it's similar to a clearing, like just being like, all right, am I going to go through those trees? Am I going to go toward the sound of that river? Am I going to go to that hill? Like it's just trying to decide. Well, you might have to make a replica of yourself and go through two doors at once. Hmm. Okay. Especially with Jupiter moving to Gemini soon. Yeah. Well, in Pluto, I think just like hovering on my midheaven, there is just like, a, there is a lot of like energy. And I even want to say like pressure around purpose mm. and sense of like intention like intentionality around my purpose. Yeah. Um, so knowing that I have the power of purpose, I think is like a part of that Pluto on the Midheaven lesson. So we'll see where it goes. Only goddess knows. Only goddess knows. Give it up to the goddess and do your best. Hey, um, speaking of goddess, we have a conversation with one of our favorite goddesses today. Oh, babies, it's going to be so amazing to have Douglas Peck in the spirit room. So we don't want this episode to be two and a half hours. No. <laughs> so let's leave this check-in and head into this episode's Dose, Dose of Reality. reality.
So it's been a minute since we've done a dose of reality. There's a lot of reality. Yeah. There's a lot of realities. There are definitely many realities, but there's really only truthfully, honestly, one, show. one reality that we want to talk about. Yeah, that we care to tap into. And that is the, the traitors. traitors. If you're not watching the traitors, <laughs> do yourself a favor and watch the traitors. You don't even yeah. need to watch season one. Just start with season two. It is just, it is, it is just such a thrill. I love just. I just have to pause. Like, I just love thinking that, like, maybe this is someone's very first time listening to this podcast, and they just had to listen to, like, 20 minutes of us, like, dissecting our lives, and now we're like, the traitors. Let's talk about it. (laughs) They're like, what is this show? Yeah. Well, even we don't know. Well, as Brandon was saying, the traitors is a show you need to be watching. It is appointment television. It is so fun. It is a competition, like a reality competition show on Peacock. Okay, can I explain it? Yeah, please. Okay, so there are reality stars across many different reality franchises. So you have Housewives, which is obviously why we're there, but you also have people from like Big Brother or Survivor or something that was called The Challenge on MTV. I don't know, but a lot of people do. So they're all in this house in Scotland. We can't tell if they actually live in the house in Scotland or if they actually like are staying at a Best Western nearby and then are bussed in every day to go to the... But That's for definitely what's happening. all intents and purposes, they live in this castle... And at the beginning of the show, three of them were secretly chosen by Alan Cumming, who hosts the show in the most like over-the-top Shakespearean queer fashion and should be nominated and win an Emmy, dethrone RuPaul. I think it's time. Sidebar. So three of them have been determined to be secret traitors. And so every night, the traitors murder one of the faithful. And every day, the faithful decide to banish one of their own ranks who they think is a traitor. And in the meantime, every episode, they're doing a challenge to gather more money for the end of the show. Because at the end of the show, when there are three people left, if they're all faithful, they split the money. But if at the end, if there's three people left and they think that there's not any traitors among them and there are, the traitor will take all the money. So it's basically like a game of like intrigue and deception mm-hmm. and murder. Yes. Uh, and the star of this show is one Ms. Phaedra Parks Esquire. I mean. Attorney mortuary at large. <laughs> She is just obliterating the competition. I actually don't want to give too much away because if you're not watching it yet, I I don't want to spoil too much. But we will say she's a traitor, which is something you find (laughs) out in episode one. That is true. But it's really about the reads that she gives all of her co-stars who come for her. Yeah. Like she offers just the most insanely witty yeah. And cutting comebacks of she anyone on television. Pretty much the definition of unflappable. Oh, completely. And she just because of her lawyer background, she's just able to fucking read people for filth. Yeah. Yeah. She's so quick. I mean, she basically just took down like this guy who I guess was like in parliament. Yeah. Like a speaker in Parliament oh, yeah. who's yeah, also he's not in the a cast? reality. He's not a reality star. He's just somebody from from Parliament. Yeah, he's like a politician. Yeah, and he totally tried to like political speak everyone, and she was like, "Okay, that was cute." But Here this I isn't go. the Parliament. Yeah, yeah it was really amazing. Yeah. But it was really her takedown this past week of the Bachelor, former Bachelor Peter, whatever somebody. His name is. Yeah, he's a pilot. Um, and her, you know, him coming for her and then her just basically telling him that like, this is not the bachelor and I don't have to kiss your ass for a rose is truly one of the 
best moments of the history of television. Honestly, it felt like a healing because here is this like very, very privileged, like cishet white guy who's probably never been talked to this way in his entire life. Yeah. And to all of a sudden for him to like receive just like that sort of like, I don't have to play by your games and I'm not like going to be enlisted in the perpetuation of your privilege. The face he made just like, like he, he just like he was like, it was like your power's no good here, buddy. I thought he may weep. I mean, I, I hope, I hope he did. I was expecting that so, in that moment. I might have. If any I hoodle. Issues. <laughs> Yes, it's reality competition television, but it also really delivers. Oh, really it completely delivers. delivers. It is like edge of your seat television. Yeah. And Phaedra is on the edge of glory, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So good. Um, you know, the Real Housewives of Miami, boom, they just uh, had their finale. Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, boom, just had their finale had dueling um, performances. Whose performance did you prefer? Adriana's on The Real Housewives of Miami or Erica Jane's on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? Adriana's. <laughs> that outfit was everything. It was so But also, good. Adriana de Mora is like one of my fucking favorite housewives of all time. Yeah. She's also so smart. Oh, yeah. She's great. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that song was entirely catchy because when I try to think of it in my head, it just start humming her other song, Faya. Yeah. But um, that's okay. That doesn't really matter. No. And she had Emilio Estefan playing the like fucking congas. Like, he believes in her. Like, come on. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, there's also 75 different versions of Drag Race currently on right now. And I actually think they're all very entertaining. Like, yeah, I'm agreed. super invested in all of them. Rank them from top to bottom right now. So there is the regular RuPaul's Drag Race. That's there, your top? No, I'm just oh, okay. recapping for everyone. Okay. There's the regular RuPaul's Drag Race. There's Drag Race UK versus the world. Which, which is like is, a global all-stars. Exactly. And then there is the España um, Drag Race España All-Stars right. that's happening right now. So if I had to rank them, I would say España's my number one. Agreed. I would say the regular season is my number two. And I would say Global All-Stars is my, or UK versus the World is my number three at the moment. But those two are kind of jockeying. Like they're kind of neck and neck. Yeah. So I kind of agree. Yeah. Um, well, we have a global all-star about to enter into the spirit room. A queen. So without any further ramblings <laughs> about our own lives or the lives of reality stars that we don't know. Apologies. Let's head into this episode's Spirit, spirit Talk. Honeys, we are so beyond thrilled to have our dear friend, Doug Peck, in the spirit room with us. Doug is a Los Angeles-based singing teacher and music director and just one of the great loves of our life. So we have been wanting to do this for so long and it's finally happening. Doug, thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you, friends. I'm so happy to be in the spirit room with you always. And Doug is somebody who possesses a deep spirituality 
I always find that like I'm having a spiritual experience whenever I'm engaging with you, even if we're doing something very mundane. And so I'm curious how you might start to articulate like your personal definition of spirituality and how you came to it. Sure. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, for me, everything comes from music first, music and sound. And the moments I can reflect on very early in my life that felt free and calm and connected were all either in the presence of hearing other people make music or making music by myself. And the like most spiritual moments of my life, the most connected moments of my life have been making music with people either privately or publicly, small spaces or big spaces. And having this art form as a profession and as a life path allows me to drop into spiritual connection with people more or less immediately because as musicians, that's what we're expected to do. Did you have like any initial moments in your relationship to music that felt particularly like soulful? Sure. I mean, one of the earliest pictures of me is just climbing a bench, which is still the bench I sit at at my piano now at my grandmother's house and just starting to make sounds on the piano. Um, mm -hmm. And a memory that I have that my parents also have is when we were like horseback riding the one time we took a trip to a dude ranch in Wyoming and I like took my horse in front of my family and was singing like the theme from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on this horse and thinking like, this is the most peaceful I will ever be. Like you had those experiences so young. Yes, it, it was instantly clear. There's never been another moment of doing anything else. That's never even been a temptation. And so did you just feel like immediately even then called to not only like pursue a, a career in music, but also then like help other people do that as well? Yes. And I'm so grateful. One of my mom's clients had a child at the Interlochen Arts Camp and said, you know, I think your son should do that too. And I went the first summer 1991 when I was 10 um, and then went for nine summers. And I bounced around between studying acting, singing and piano. But like my third or fourth summer there, I was already coaching my friends and giving voice lessons to my friends. And that just felt so natural. And to this day, if I work on a song with one of my students at USC or a younger student in my private studio, I'll call or text the people I first discovered those songs with as a teenager and say, I'm having that moment again and we're revisiting that musical memory. And those are some of the people I'm still the most connected to because we discovered ourselves together through music. So what is it about music that connects us to spirit? I love that question, Brandon. I have felt that when I've made music with you. God knows. Um, it's, you know, there's the old trope that musicians are really good at math and I'm not really good at math. So I think um, it speaks to something much deeper than that, at least the way I like to make music, which is about sound and vibration and energy and hitting a note on a piano, singing a note in your voice and it changes the molecules in the room. It changes the hair on the listener's body. It changes the parts inside of us. Um, my teacher does sound healing and I've experienced sound healing with the two of you, which is so powerful. And I think we're, we lose something when we think of that as separate from regular old making music because 
even, I mean, Angel, you're so good about this. Going to a pop concert is a kind of healing and hearing vibration on that level affecting a group of people together. That's that's where religion has gone in this century. And those are the big epic religious experiences we're all seeking. And I feel so lucky to get to make them sometimes. Yeah, because it's all like energetic, right? It feels like molecules merging. But, you know, the the molecules of our souls as well, right? It's like the aura that exists at a concert. Like it's like this one giant collective aura that I think comes together. So I can only imagine the power that can occur when it's just you and another person working collectively towards creating something. That's right. It's like the, like I'm going to a big pop concert is like looking at every color in the rainbow. And when it's two people, it's just a purple and a yellow, being a purple and a yellow and the frequencies of that vibrating. And then as far as the teaching piece of what I do, a lot of people come to me because let's say they want their purple to be more purple or they don't know what color they are and they want to discover what color they are. Or sometimes people have an injury or an emotional, spiritual, mental, physical, or some combination of those <clears throat> block around their music making and their voice. And they want to find a physical healing, an emotional healing, a mental healing um, to release that. And that's that's some of the most powerful work I get to do. I feel very blessed to do that. So I had an acting teacher. She was a Leo. And she used to say, the body and the voice do the work of the soul. Amen. I love that. And that was something that was kind of like ringing in my ears today as I was preparing to have this conversation with you. And I'm just wondering... What does it mean to you to think of the work that you do as unlocking the soul? So here's my <clears throat> several part answer to that. One, I'm not a therapist. And Correct. When someone, <laughs> I'm not trained to be a therapist. I do a profession that's adjacent to therapy, but is not therapy. Having had a lot of therapy myself, I'm very humbled by the people I've learned from in those spaces, how much more they know about the healing of the mind-body connection through thought patterns and the healing arts that you guys participate in. So this is distinct from that. However, it's adjacent to it. And when we make sound, we know this from neuroscience now, the vagus nerve is heavily stimulated by singing. There's all the studies that you know elderly people who sing maintain their memory more. We've seen those beautiful studies of people who can't remember very much, but they remember songs from their childhood. And that emotional connection through music making is a kind of healing from the day we're on this earth to the day we leave this earth. Um, I do experience very often people telling me things they've never told anybody before. Um, and the way I handle that is to hold space for it and listen to it and be empathetic and try to come up with a vocal exercise that will help them move through that, not a therapy exercise to move through that. Yeah, um, for sure. I really do believe that... It, the things that are stuck in our throat chakra have to come out so that the singing underneath it and behind it can also come out. Mm. My last student of the day and I were talking about this. He was, he was gone for nine months traveling in Europe and South America, and he was listening back to a lot of our lessons and redoing them. And he said, God, you were so patient with me because you just let me talk and talk and talk in some of those early lessons. I said, that's deliberate. If I told you to, you know, get to the exercises, stop doing that. It would teach him that his, feelings and thoughts don't matter, which of course I don't believe that. And it needed to come out and needed to come through so that the singing voice 
behind it and underneath it could come through. And then today's lesson, we sang the whole time. I love that you mentioned the throat chakra and obviously like just in the example you were sharing about like letting this person really speak their truth, you know, it's almost like you're clearing the gunk <laughs> that's in there so that you can get to the purity of the voice. That's right. When did like even just like the concept of the throat chakra enter into your practice? Sure. I mean, I definitely am a Jew from the Midwest and right. <laughs> not grow up thinking that way. Um, I was lucky enough to go to India three times as part of a music research project for a stage version of Disney's The Jungle Book and got to study Indian music with Indian musicians in India and Indian musicians in Chicago and Boston. And I learned a lot about how music making works in that culture. Um, the most pertinent part to me was learning that in Indian music, like in Black American music, soul is an identifiable quality. And you can say that has soul, that doesn't have soul, which in white Western classical music, you can't say that. There's no marker for that, like something is sharp or flat. Um, so learning, oh, you can experience soulfulness as a quality in a sound and quantify that was really interesting to me. And then I got divorced and started going to yoga classes and learning about the chakra system. And I mean, I'll share with your listeners that when I first started going to yoga after I got divorced, anytime my head would go up, I would just start sobbing. And I realized, oh, there's something stuck in my throat. My singing range is getting smaller. That's a technical thing. And anytime I move this part of my body, I'm crying. Oh, I wonder if for nine years of my life, I was suppressing what I wanted to say. Of course I was. <laughs> um, so that release, I started when I got really serious in my singing teaching to think, oh, I bet that's what people are experiencing when they're in a voice lesson and when the vagus nerve is stimulated and when all of the parts, all of the muscles in the throat that surround the larynx come into movement, people experience a healing through movement. And then the, the biggest, biggest, biggest hallelujah, amen moment for me was meeting my teacher, Jeannie Lovetri, four years ago, who is a sound healer, has been teaching for 50 years, um, a methodology called somatic voice work soma being the body and she's very deliberate in her teacher training of us teachers about how and when to stimulate that through what kinds of exercises so this is great because i wanted to talk to you about somatics because i know it's something that you've been studying and i'm not an expert in somatics but as a healer i do know that everything we experience in this life and potentially even in previous lives live somewhere in our bodies until it is encountered, expressed, or liberated. That's my like general understanding of what somatic work is. But I want to hear from you who actually have training, like what is somatics? How do you work with it? And how could our listeners start to like explore that means of healing themselves? It isn't like psychological but it is it is more spiritual and physical and, and emotional right well i mean recognizing that in this human journey we are in a body the whole time we're here is the foundation and you can deal with your mind and you can deal with your soul spirit psyche whatever terms you want to use for that but in somatics we're working with the body as the instrument which as an actor and a singer makes sense to me because when i go to play my piano i'm playing on the piano when I use my singing body, I'm using my body to sing. Um, the idea behind somatic voice work is that the opposite of stiffness or stuckness is movement. 
So knowing which parts to move when to get what result is the, is the complete essence of what we do and is the art of being a teacher to hear someone's sound. And if it's a, it's a functional sound to think, okay, they're at this level, they can put 125 pounds on the bar that is their throat. Can we get them to 150 pounds through a more difficult exercise? But in a voice that's stuck or a voice that's damaged, you need to be more creative and think, oh, that person's tongue isn't moving at all. Or, oh, that person's jaw isn't moving at all. What are gentle chewing and humming exercises? Um, it feels like being a child and exploring in a mirror and thinking, oh, can I stick out my tongue? Uh, can I go blah, 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 and, ah, and do mosquito voices and do Santa Claus voices? Because very, 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 very few children have stuck voices. That's, you think about a baby crying for hours and hours and hours and end to be heard and never losing their voice to an adult whose voice is so stuck that they can barely be heard. It's a, it's a pretty severe journey from point A to point B. And the goal of somatics is to get you back to point A so you can get to point C. And obviously you're working with the intention to free the voice. And so there is physiological musculature that you're like talking about, like the larynx and vocal folds and things of that nature. But have you also found in working with students that there are like other parts of the body that wouldn't technically be connected to the voice that need to be addressed in order to, to get the job done? Every part of us is connected to our voice. And in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of additional teacher training. The pandemic was actually great for that. Every voice teacher in the world went online and all of a sudden we're learning about fascia and we're learning about the Chinese medicine theory of different diaphragms throughout the body. And can you release your feet into the floor? And does that get a sympathetic response in your diaphragm that we talk about in singing? And does that get a sympathetic response in your throat? Of course it does. Depending on the astrological and psychological profile of a given student, some people will say, oh, that worked because you distracted me. And some people will say, oh, no, that worked because I felt a release elsewhere in my body and my voice went with that release. Mm. The other piece of somatic voice work specifically is that it's my teacher, Jeannie Levetri, was the first person to stand up and say, why are we calling this non-classical music? This is the music that's popular in the world. And she coined the term contemporary commercial music and took seriously R&B singing, gospel singing, blues singing, rap, musical theater, all of the different styles sung on all seven continents as different than singing classical, Western classical music and opera. Um, and the voice is used differently. The very, very simple example, when Aretha Franklin sings a high note, she looks up. In classical singing, you'd be told not to do that. But I don't think anyone's gonna say that there's anything wrong with the way Aretha Franklin sang. Right. Right? That's a pretty, she sang the same way for six decades. Same with Barbara Streisand, same with Celine Dion, God bless her. Um, so taking those ways of movement seriously as a path to making the kind of sound or sounds a singer wants to make is, is the name of the game for us. You know, I just am curious to follow this thread because you just mentioned her and you're wearing her on your t-shirt. So Barbara Streisand. Yes. <laughs> She just had the gift of her voice. The voice. Like it was just a fully developed, fully formed thing that she had at a very young age. And it, and of course we know about people who have gifts and, uh, you know, gifts across the board, whether it's an athletic gift or a gift of writing or, you know, actors, painters, what have you. I'm just curious from your point of view, 
does everyone have a voice that can be developed to a level that we would all say that is a beautiful soulful sound or is is it arbitrary some people are born with the gift and some people are not i'm just i'm curious to explore this a little bit this is one of my favorite topics and it, it keeps coming up this year um and the more high profile people i work with the more i find that question of, is of interest to them because they are interested in learning about themselves how much of this can I take no bows for? How much of this is nature and how much of this is nurture? Um, I mean, to me, Barbara Streisand is Barbara Streisand because her body and her throat are built the way that they are. And then she used that body and that throat endlessly through singing and speaking over and over and over at a loud volume. Um, we talk about in singing teaching, what we've lost in the last, 80 to 100 years is loud speaking the hey come on in here or calling to someone across the building or across the neighborhood or across the alps um which in older cultures people did and in some parts of the world people still do but if we think about there being a decline in singing which i'm not sure i agree with um part of that loss is people don't call to each other and don't speak loudly so the reason Barbara Streisand has great breath control and can sing loud high notes over and over is her instrument and her use of her instrument. What's unique about singing teaching is we're building the instrument while we're using the instrument, as opposed to take a violin out of the box and learn to play it. But to follow that analogy, if you get a Stradivarius, it's going to sound really good. And if you get a my first Yamaha or whatever, it might not sound so good at first with an amateur playing it. But someone like Streisand hit the jackpot of she had a Stradivarius in her body and she used it a lot. But as she talks about in her memoir, she had one and a half voice lessons in her whole life. So that that learning was self-guided. Right. And I remember that chapter in her book when she talks about a period when she was young where she kind of got in her head about using her voice and she like lost it for a minute. And that's when she went and saw the voice teacher who said like, essentially, I have nothing to teach you. Like everything you're doing is right. Get out of your own head, Babs. And that's basically what she did. And that's a, that's a pretty easy voice lesson to teach. You make your money. <laughs> very easily if That's all you have to think about. But that is telling that, you know, she held notes forever and didn't really think about how special that was. And people pointed that out and she got insecure about it. That those kind of things happen to high profile artists all the time. And when I support those kind of people on that level, of course, we're doing vocal exercises all day long to get the voice to do what it needs to do for a tour where they're singing for hours on end, many days a week, many months in a row. But a lot of that is the mental piece and the spiritual piece and the um, artistic piece. I've also had an interesting experience the last couple of years working more with people who write their own music, like songs we all know. And if they don't have acting training and are not used to singing other people's material, they don't even think about or notice how complex their own material it is, is because it came from them. Mm. And when you start to analyze it, there's a process, it feels very Buddhist to me, of the person who wrote the song and the person who's singing the song as distinct people inside the same person. Mm, totally. Well, I forget who it was. Maybe it will come to me. No, it was Adele 
who said like people think I'm like deeper than I am because of the songs I write but I don't even realize that like when I write the song I'm unaware of like the depth that it's expressing and I'm actually like kind of like blissfully basic you know yeah <laughs> which is in, in in a flow state what it should feel like you can't be overly analytical in a flow state that's the god piece that's the spiritual piece but after it's written I believe you can be very analytical, analytical about it poets do that all the time right and right. notice what you've written and because I come from an acting background that uh, that analysis piece does deepen performance and the process of helping people analyze what they've written after they've written it is really interesting. Now, I suppose at some point I'm bound to meet someone who says, excuse me, I don't want to do that. I would rather stay in the basic bitch phase of not understanding my material to deliver it. And that's, they're the one out there, so they can do that too. Yeah, do they, I imagine though, that maybe even the people who do do it, fight it perhaps in the beginning because um, perhaps I they don't want to go that deep in it. Who knows? I haven't experienced too much fighting, but I have uh, experienced, a, oh my God, I've never thought about that. Like asking someone to think about or to describe to you what the back of their body looks like. Okay. We don't think about that. So why would you have a, a, a ready analysis and description of that? I do will say every once in a while with a male artist, there's a little bit more of a fight, the like two dudes in a room phenomenon, but <laughs> I'm a cancer, so I can disarm it when needed. So can we talk a little astrology? Yes. I was very struck by the fact that Doug recently got their birth chart tattooed on their, it's your left arm. Yes, it is. Yeah, it looks so good. Yeah, it looks so good. Mm -hmm. And yeah, can I share, can I share some of your astrology with the people? Do I have your permission? You're okay. one of my favorite people to hear talk about my astrology. I always learn something. Okay. So Doug and I both share an Aries rising, uh, but Doug is a cancer sun, Leo moon which is uh, the Lana Del Rey combination. So uh, <laughs> planets that are, they're in mutual reception. So the sun in Cancer answers to the moon in Leo and the moon in Leo answers to the sun in Cancer. So there's this like really amazing ability to do both of those things, like to take up space the way that a Leo does and also to like hold space the way that a Cancer does. So I think it's very interesting the fact that so much of what you do is holding space for performers, like that's so Cancer Leo. Um, but also you have your own voice too. You're not somebody that like hides behind other people. So I have two questions and you can answer them in whatever order you wish and in, in whatever order that you wish. Did you always have your voice and what was the path that you had to walk to, to have the voice that you have? And I mean that both in like, your singing voice, but also like the voice that you have as a person in the world. And then also to go back to the astrology of it, like how has astrology helped you with your own voice and working with other people? Because you did say that if they'll give it to you, you'll use their astrology to help you find your way in. These are great. So uh, asking someone their sun sign is a formal part of my intake. Um, and more and more people start to tell you they're rising and their moon. And if some people know it, they'll rattle off everything in the world, which is just so great and i first of all feel very blessed that all of my astrology teachers have been queer i've learned from the two of you from our friend jeff hinshaw and from my friend uh, travis black bathhouse mystic um so i feel like i've received more of a queer perspective on astrology from my teachers rather than like meme-based astrology i don't ever judge anybody by what signs they are um 
actually it's fun with the two of you when you two do let yourselves indulge in a little bit of that <laughs> and be like oh that's not a good moon to have i'm like oh, i don't think like that but you guys know the world so well you have permission to do that i think but it helps me to know that if someone is for example a virgo i will work in a much more um completable and measurable task-based way to work right now we're working chest voice over five notes did we accomplish that great let's move on to the next one Whereas let's say I'm working with a Gemini, we'll do alternative exercises where we do, let's do this. And then now let's zigzag and do the opposite of that. And that it feels more like gameplay and keeps someone simulated or with more of a Cancer Pisces person. It's let's see how sad we can make that sound and let's see how happy we can make that sound. Um, ultimately, I want to do all of that work with everybody, but that's a great way to start, um, especially if someone reflects back that that means something to them. Um, as far as my own voice, it's been kind of complex for me. I've never taught a piano lesson because playing piano was more or less a download for me. Obviously, I had piano teachers and learned a lot from them, but I don't ever remember thinking like, what is that? How do you play that? Like the entry point was given to me. Whereas I do remember as like a young listener of Tina Turner and Leontine Price and all these different styles of music I love thinking, how the hell do you do that? Mm -hmm. And I remember taking voice lessons and thinking, well, I know and love music really well, so I'm not, I'm not learning music in these lessons, but I am learning the mechanics of how to use a voice. I have a low voice, I'm a bass, so the experience of puberty was very tumultuous for my voice. I The week before my bar mitzvah, my voice changed and I got laryngitis. So I was like practicing in my like beautiful boy soprano and then all hell broke loose and I was like scratchy grandma voice. It was oh, very, wow. very upsetting. I still am upset about it. Um, and then the real gift of my life is I played piano. I played accompanied on the piano for people's voice lessons. So while my peers only got one lesson a week, I would witness sometimes 30, 40 lessons a week. And I got paid to do it. So I would watch teachers teach Angel one way and teach Brandon another way and teach Doug a third way and then have access to all of that and then go in a practice room and try it for myself. Um, and I kept it to myself for a long time. I always thought, well, I'm around like the greatest singers in the world. Who the hell needs me to sing? Um, and then when I was in Chicago, after I got divorced, I started doing more solo performing. It's not my favorite thing in the entire world. I really do enjoy collaborating and making music with people, but it at least showed me, okay, this is something I'm very comfortable doing. I like doing it. I know what and how I want to do it when I do. And yeah, then it gives me more of a, uh, empathetic mindset of what the people I'm working with are doing so I know what it is like to be in their shoes as they make sound. It's interesting though because I'm not just talking about your singing voice I'm talking about like your voice as someone in the world who is quite courageous in letting their opinion be known and speaking out against injustice like someone who takes up space and I'm curious if that's something that you were always able to do or if that's something that you learned or evolved over time. That is something I was always able to do, but I've been called to do it more and in specific ways, which I'm grateful for. Like, this is a plus of growing up the grandchild of Ukrainian and Polish immigrants. And my dad's from New York. My mom's from Chicago. My parents are hippies. We were definitely encouraged to have our own opinions and voice them loudly. Um, like in my bar mitzvah, I literally said I didn't agree with God about part of my Torah portion, which everybody when I said that. And I was like, why are they laughing? Like. I'm allowed to say I don't agree with God. Who's God? Who's me? That, not, those are just ideas. Um, and yeah, I just have always felt, maybe this is an Aries rising thing. I don't know. I feel 
in the flow of life. I feel at harmony with life. And I'm like, what's the worst thing that could happen if you disagree with somebody or you state your opinion? It's your opinion. Um, I know that's a point of privilege to be able to say that, but that's how I feel. Um, the piece of it that really intensified that for me, though, I um, got a lot of work when I was a music director in Chicago, music directing for black shows where we'd have a lot of black actors in the room, but I'd be a white member of the creative team. And a dear friend of mine, Bear Bellinger, who was an actor in one of the cast said, hey, if you're gonna make music with us, you need to stand up for us more than you are. He's like, I think you think you're doing more than you are. It's time to start doing more than you are. And we're such good friends and I love him. He's like a brother to me. I thought he's absolutely right. I will adjust that behavior starting right now. And really took seriously that my friend asked me to be louder on his behalf and have done so um, and have tried to encourage other people like me to do so. Um, there was a period, my mom's a diversity consultant and I asked her, so I'm starting to like talk about all this online and in life. Do you think um, I should watch what I say online? And my mom said to me, it was a very good point. She said, anybody you wanna work with feels the same way as you or will be able to feel the same way as you. So if someone judges, judges you for that, that's not someone you need to work with, which was mm. really like the last little lower the shoulders of that that I could have received to think then just say what you want to say and you'll attract the right people. That's beautiful. That's amazing that you're able to like get that kind of confirmation of a lesson from your mother. Thanks for, I, I appreciate that. I don't, yeah. I don't think about that that often. I think about Bear all the time. So it's nice to have this opportunity to sort of speak through that and think, oh, that was a helpful piece too. Yeah, but beautiful that your friend also felt like confident and vulnerable enough to speak that truth to you and get you on that journey to being more outspoken. The other piece is that I'm around young people all the time as a teacher. So I'm constantly around people wearing everything, saying everything, thinking everything, doing everything in a way that I'm constantly faced with. And this is total cancer vibes to think, yeah, I could believe that. I could do that. I can shift into that very easily. Yeah. So let's talk about the children. Yeah. You're working with like the, the genus Z's of Z's. <laughs> what is that experience like for you in regards to just what you're, I mean, you kind of just touched on it a little of what you're learning, but like, how is that evolving you and challenging you? I mean, to me, having traveled a lot, it really does feel like, oh, I'm in a different country. And as human beings, we are the same, but we belong to a different culture. And there's cultural rules and cultural norms that exist discreetly for us. And I don't really mean judgment, but the noticing goes in both directions. Um, and as someone who speaks a couple languages okay, I try to learn to speak their language a little bit without sacrificing my language. Um, and yeah, it, it's just really open is the best best word I would use to describe the difference. And like everything, there's gains and there's losses. The gain is how flexible we can all be, how respectful we can all be, um, how we can let go of power structures in a teacher-student environment, which is really healing for teacher and student to do. The loss is it's a lot slower, and there's now a whole lot of things you feel like you can't say because you might upset somebody, and obviously that care is very important to me, but sometimes the most direct path is a straight line, and 
we do learn lessons when we are upset and hurt and the avoidance of that can create a different kind of culture where sometimes as a 42 year old i feel like oh we are learning less at a slower rate but maybe in a deeper way and maybe in a um, more kind way and that that's definitely worth weighing um something that's better in this generation than previously is co-teaching any experience i had of having co-teachers when i was a young person was awful and based on power structures and fights in the room and working with other empathetic adults who are our age teaching that generation it's really beautiful to hold space together um, and that's something that generation is actively teaching us which is great but the specific piece i'd say for the acting portion of what we do that i think personally is a loss is that everything has to be about the young person at all times and that is now culturally rewarded and professionally rewarded and i think one of the most beautiful things we do as artists is to become someone else and experience someone else and i mean i've had students talk themselves out of singing a song in a voice lesson well i'm gay but i'm not jewish or i'm jewish but i'm not gay and i can't sing the song from falsettos because i don't hold both of those identities and i'm like i don't think the people who wrote this feel that way and i think the loss is greater than the gain. I think you will gain enough by working on this piece of music, at least in the room with the two of us together. Whether you make money off of singing it is a much, much larger conversation. Right. Yeah, because there are lessons of even just empathy and understanding that come with standing in those positions. I mean, I can remember, you know, young me, like just playing eponine in my room and just like belting on my own and like really like i mean obviously just because i love that song and it was so poppy and like but also i think just like there was something in that experience too that like connected me to the pain and the sadness like it it not only gave my own young angst a pathway but i as I learned more about like the show itself and like understanding like, Oh, what this character is experiencing. Um, I think that's like so necessary just in the teaching and like the growing pattern. Especially when we were growing up and there were not that many songs written for explicitly queer people. Right. It's the Judy Garland thing. It's the Billie Holiday thing, the Edith Piaf thing. Like we as queer people found our voice through them. And those artists were aware of that and sang for us. Um, I think that we all should be singing all of that music, at least in a study-based way. Um, and I enjoy conversations with people who hold the different viewpoint on that, because I think we all learn from meeting in the middle in a conversation. That's my three planets in Libra that I'm so grateful <laughs> for, that make being outspoken easy, because I am always willing to be spoken to and to change my opinion. I'm thinking about the fact that Every church, every synagogue, every mosque, every organized religion has a musical component that is integral to how connection with the divine is achieved. And there's something about like losing yourself in the music. Mm -hmm. And that also when you are singing yourself, you are almost losing yourself in your own voice. And I know there's like a technical element to it, but like getting like when Barbara holds that note forever before she thinks about it, she's getting, she's getting lost beyond herself. That's right. And it feels like if everything's about you 
and the identity that only you can articulate, you've actually like lost the connective quality of what music is doing in the first place, which is saying you're so much bigger than just like being Brandon Alter or Doug Peck. You're this voice that comes from beyond that wants to be here for this for this moment. That's right. Definitely in big, loud, high music, because we're going so far beyond speech in terms of range, volume, and duration of notes. Like Barbara Streisand holding a note for 20 seconds is not something even the most emphatic grandma would do in speech. Like, I won't, I'll do this if I were with Michael, but you wouldn't do, Brandon! to call to somebody you may be the first third of that and then you would stop right <laughs> in song the emotional event is so large can be so large that you would hold it that long and that is beyond the daily um that's important something we're just now learning from neuroscience in an articulated way but of course anyone who's ever sung a vocalese a song without words or hummed or oohed or odd um or has chanted to the point where the words don't mean anything anymore, knows that sound and language are produced in separate parts of the brain. And we're so verbal as a culture. We're always talking, we're always texting, we're always reading words, 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 words. And the musical brain, when that verbal brain can turn off, takes us somewhere that words can't. Um, a friend of mine said last night that her resolution for the Lunar New Year, which, by the way, we should all should do, um, is neither pen nor tongue. And her goal is to talk and communicate less. Um, which I think as a brilliant actor, this is what the person is, um, is a great resolution because it challenges her natural default and challenges the natural default of a lot of us. Um, I thought of something, Brandon, as you were asking that question, though, that in a way I never thought about it before. Music connects us to the divine, and that's why it's part of every religion. But also musicians know how to connect us to the divine. And it makes sense that the Bachs and Mozarts and Richard Smallwoods and all the Indian composers and whoever was writing the music for any religious service knew how to tap into the spiritual and that's why they were brought into the church, the synagogue, the mosque, what have you, to in to enhance that connection. Yeah, and is there like a different like? Because sometimes I'm like, okay, am I being manipulated? Like, or is this a actually? That's yeah, that's how we feel about organized religion, right? Like, I had the experience when I was in D.C. once at the um, church that Lincoln went to, where for the first and only time in my life, I've heard a Mozart mass performed the way it was in Mozart's time, where they do a movement, then they'd read from the Bible. Then they do a movement, then something would happen in the theater of a church service, and then there'd be another movement. I thought, oh my God, this is completely different than when you listen to a Mozart mass on a CD or hear it excerpted in a concert hall. And it is manipulative. Like you hear this gigantic cadence, and then they read from the book, and then the person lifts the baby and put whatever. Um, it's, I mean, it's drag at the end of the day. It's so theatrical. Well, and I'm also just thinking about like the way music is used in like film and television too, which is manipulative, but then also produces an emotional result that is like true. Like I might be manipulated to tears, but then once I'm feeling what I'm feeling, the emotion is true. Like I'm connected to a true part of myself, regardless however that was achieved. Yeah, and we know how to take you there. That's our, that's our specialty. And that is 
that is the math of music, knowing, oh, this chord following that chord or this interval on that word, ooh, that's going to affect somebody. Totally. You know, I'm going to share a story just because I feel compelled to do so, which is that I think my first spiritual experience happened when I was in high school at like a very Episcopalian school and there was like the Christmas concert and uh, you were allowed to like audition a solo piece for the Christmas concert and I auditioned a Hebrew song, Lador Vador. And that I was accepted. And so I got to sing this like Jewish song, like at a Christmas concert. I don't speak Hebrew, you know, like I can read it the way like most reformed Jews can, but like I, so it, it's not cerebral for me. It's basically like, these are the sounds I have to make. And I remember standing on that stage and singing that song. And it was like, I got like tunnel vision. Like I was, I was transported somewhere else. It was like, I, I was swept away by whatever it was that I was doing. And I remember like walking off stage and being like, oh, like I, I touched, I touched the goddess in that moment and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And so while I have my own beef with all of the organized religions, I also think there is like a magical alchemy to some of that old work as well, which is like the right sound, both like the right note and then the right vowel when put together has some sort of like numinous effect. That's right. And that's why there's all these playlists. There's some of the most listened to musics on earth right now of, oh, 562 hertz. If you listen to that for two hours, you will be healed. And that's something people have known since the dawn of time when they were making tuning forks and prayer bowls and all the sounds that you hear for one second and you go, oh. I don't know if you guys have listened to the audiobook version of Rick Rubin's creative act, but he hits a Buddhist bowl between every chapter break and it makes you feel creative while you're listening to it and draws you into his words and his slow, light way of speaking. It is, I mean, obviously he didn't create that, but he learned that that's a tool to keep us focused and keep us inspired. Um, I mean, a lot of musicians lead very difficult emotional lives. That's not a secret from anybody. And having an experience like you mentioned, Brandon, is where we find that release in our life. Um, I know that if I didn't have music as an outlet, I would be in a mental institution to like have such strong feelings. Maybe that is the articulation of Cancer Leo you described. Every day of my life, I cry every single day. I get angry every single day. But music is the place to flow that through so that I don't, you know, weep at the grocery store or scream at my friend. Because I don't want to do that. More than you already do. <laughs> no, I don't scream at my friend. No, I do weep at the grocery store. Uh, that's, that was really the one I was talking to. <laughs> sometimes the produce is just so beautiful here in LA. You might yes. shed a tear. Or just the people. Right. Yes. Oh my God, that Silver Lake Erewhon. Everyone's so Honey. beautiful. Honey. Oh my goddess. <laughs> but I think that's also like why post 2020 we've experienced such a like abundance of music and touring and you know because i feel like all of the musicians are just exploding with feelings and and the need that you're talking about which is that need to create in order to soothe their own whatever's going on inside of them but then we're all connecting to it which is why we'll pay $800 to go see Beyonce, you know, because we also need that cathartic moment and have to share it with her and like everyone around us. 
that piece is the piece people don't talk about. And it like that feels like let's say you were in the old temple in Jerusalem and you got to go into the Holy of Holies, you would not talk about what it felt like in there. And that is such a flow state like you felt during Lador Vador, Brandon. Um of I don't even know what it feels like to be in there and we probably shouldn't talk about it. Um Barbara Cook, one of my absolute favorite singers of all time, said she never wanted the songs to end because it felt safe inside of there. And it was very complicated for her when a song ended, which is another way to express that idea of you are in a different place while there's music with you. Mm. Um, the, the, the most distant I've ever felt from someone in my entire life, a friend of mine's father is a long distance truck driver. And I asked him what music he listens to. And he said, I don't listen to music. I listen to silence. I was like, you're either the most spiritually elevated person I've ever met in my life or a sociopath. Like, to think three days of quiet is that, that would, I would go insane. I would would think that's such an opportunity to commune with sound and experience sound and movement. And that's how I drive with listening to opera and jazz and gospel and and all that stuff to meditate while I'm driving. Yeah, I I mean, I definitely like, like to create spaces for quiet, but um, there's like a timer set. <laughs> yeah, I gotta get some music back on. I need it. <laughs> no, completely. It's the first thing I do in the morning is put music on. It's the last thing I do before bed. It shifts us. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, do you have one or more that experiences like very personal? experiences where you were in a space you know experiences that you can share with us where you were in a space either at a concert or in a lesson you know where you were like felt the soul of the song i mean the the one that comes most immediately to mind i did leonard bernstein's candide in three cities for a year and there were times during that piece where it truly felt like god was conducting that i was not the stage manager was not nothing nothing of human flesh was in charge of that collective experience and it happened so often that it felt very clear what it was and that also felt like the don't talk about the holy holies like don't analyze it don't ask for it just let it be um mm-hmm. reading this great book right now called the method which is a sort of biography of the method in acting told from its inception in Russia through New York to Los Angeles. And because it started in Russian and Stanislavski was a Russian Orthodox practitioner, acting has a lot of that language inside of it. And he was looking for, I think it's Vayasyo, I'm sorry to anyone who speaks Russian better than me, um, which is the I am of it, right? And that that is... That's definitely what it felt like in those moments, that something much larger than us is the I am of this moment. And it was catharsis for the people who made it and the people who heard it. That shows the only show I've ever done where on closing, there was like the regular three or four curtain calls and we all went backstage and the actresses were out of their wigs already and the audience was still standing and applauding. Wow. And our stage manager said, you all have to go back out there. They're not going to leave. And I was like, I don't think the people of Boston do this all the time. It felt like they felt that and didn't want that to end. Um, yeah, and then I experience it all the time working with singers that I work with who are pretty adept at falling into that space more or less every time we sing. Um, 
the most recent one for me, I work with the incredible Heather Headley, and we did a pandemic concert with the Lyric Opera of Chicago, where it was just the two of us on stage in an empty opera house. And Heather's from Trinidad. She's very spiritual. She's very comfortable speaking about that kind of stuff in a way that a lot of Americans are not. Um, I'm always very taken with and grateful for how she talks about spirit. And also when we were preparing for that concert, there was a lot of looting in downtown Chicago. So the city really clearly showed the emotional and political unrest that was happening. And I remember she was very distraught about seeing the city that we're both from in such rough shape and what that represented. And then we walked on stage to this empty opera house and the material we chose to do was a lot about being at home because we knew the viewers would be at home. And the two of us in that space that we more or less had taken for granted pre-pandemic, all of a sudden thinking about it as a home for us and hearing the first notes on the piano ring out in the opera house and hearing her voice fall into the opera house was like, this is something else. And what's interesting is she was first and we did her stuff first, but then every single other singer who we came in to work with had the same response when they heard the first note on the piano and the first note of themselves in the space. And that's what we were talking about at the beginning, right? The sound moving the molecules. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also the reflection of it. Like when you hear yourself, you're also like hearing a part of yourself that you don't necessarily see reflected in the mirror. Like you're having your soul reflected back to you. There's like that largesse. My teacher says it's a very simple sentence, but it's very profound. She says, the voice does not lie. You can mm. hear someone in a way that, I mean, there's like body language experts you hire to teach you like, oh, that person's left shoulder is forward. They must be in a more aggressive mood. There are very few voice language analysts because we as human beings don't need that. We can tell when yeah. someone is lying. We can tell when someone is confident or afraid or sounds really tired. Um, the voice is often the first detector of health problems in the body and voice teachers have saved lives by noticing something's not happening right with this person's voice. They should go to a doctor. Oh, it's not a vocal problem. They, God forbid, have cancer or have, are about to have a seizure and no one caught it before. Um, you can hear that in the voice as it's produced. And you can also hear what you were talking about with, you know, Indian musicians, this sense like I can hear there's either like it can be a beautiful sound, but there's no soul in it. Right. Or it can be like maybe not the most technically beautiful sound, but there's so much soul in it that that's actually what you're hungry for. That's what I prefer. And it's funny being a voice teacher sometimes because some of my colleagues are so obsessed with how is it beautiful? How is it seamless? How is it effortless? Which, of course, is a beautiful um, goal to also pursue. But. I'm a musician first and a voice teacher second. So for me, what matters is how does it make you feel? What does it say? What does it mean? Where does it come from? What story is it telling? Because the Tina Turners and the Edith Piafs do that. And that's, that's what I grew up being drawn to. All right. Well, like Barbara Cook, I could stay in this song forever with the three of us, but I am aware of the time. So I feel like I want to ask you one more question and then we'll bring this conversation in for a landing. And I'm curious about what happens to the voice as we get older and how the voice changes, evolves, matures. I mean, you talked about what happens at puberty, but after that, what happens to the human voice as we live many, many, many more decades, if we're lucky? What a beautiful question. I'm going to answer the part that I know you particularly will like first. There's a phenomenon called, is it grandma or grandpa on the phone? Because in a gender binary, in general, 
cis women's voices lower over time as there's more testosterone in the body and cis male voices rise in pitch as testosterone leaves our bodies. So if you think about like prime of your life, 40 year old man in a dropped in lower sound and a woman who's really in her power. Well, now it's probably a little, a little bit closer <laughs> to here because people don't speak in that voice anymore. Um, and women are trained to speak lower, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the pitch range, the difference between those gendered voices is larger in the phase of life that we're in. Whereas an older female voice will drop and a, 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 a older male voice will raise almost to birth where they are similar which is in some ways beautiful, like from a gender perspective, like we return back to what we were at birth, which is more or less gender less. Yeah. Um, the physical piece, I mean, every part of the body sags, the vocal folds are no exception. The larynx is no exception. The larynx is actually one part of the body that ossifies as we age, it turns to a more bone-like structure. So it loses the ability to move, which is why older people don't have as much vocal power normally. Mm. But Doing singing exercises is great to keep everything mobile and right. young for sounding. Um, also, the muscles of the throat tend to sag like the rest of the body, and it's harder for people to keep up their range and to keep up their pitch. Um, and life makes us weary, so we tend to fall into a monotone, which working on music expands for us, and you tend to speak in a greater pitch range if you keep to using that pitch range. Um, but also, there's people like Leontine Price, like Patti LaBelle, like Shaka Khan, mostly black women, but people of all races and genders. Cher. Cher um, is not who I would say, for what I would <laughs> say, but we love Cher, um, who keep their vocal range and who don't have the sagging effect. And I mean, Tony Bennett was another example too, of like he sang the same range his whole life. Cher is more in the like with Roberta Flack category of she never had a big range and she sang really well, and Cher took voice lessons, probably still does, um, and never lost her small range. But it would have been, other than the West Side Story video, we haven't heard a ton of Cher's <laughs> upper register. She didn't favor us with it in our concert work. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I actually have one last question. Oh. I know that you worked with um, the illustrious Brandonna Summer at one point <laughs> yes, in her career. Is she as massive a nightmare <laughs> as the rumors have have said? Angel, this is incredible. Um, well, what to, to be really honest, I mostly worked with Brandon Alter Who's in that? rehearsals. <laughs> Who's that? We've heard of her um, in rehearsals, and then they transformed into Brandonna Summer for more or less. I think only the performances. Because I imagine, you tell me better, but like the art and act of becoming her, both visually and spiritually, is laborious, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And also, like, I, I, I always thought of that work as like, I am building the house that she gets to live in. Yeah. And so I didn't want to, like, assume that I knew what she would want to do in the space. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, of course, obviously, like some of the work we did was a little bit more liminal because you were helping me not just develop the music, but also with interpretation and things. And so there was a little bit of like Brandonna without all of the artifice. But 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 for me, what was most thrilling about that work is always that like she always like I'm just like a I'm an observer, like I'm just a passenger during the Brandonna show. And she's always surprising me with what she does. That's what it felt like. And that's different than like I'm doing a musical with somebody and she's playing a character it felt yeah. like it felt like brandon was not here anymore yeah and 
it felt like, oh, this thing obviously came from Brandon, but it's distinct from Brandon, um, existed in a more overtly feminine, more overtly dramatic, louder, larger, um, flippant, bitchy place. But I was never uh, made to feel small. There were never any unkind moments toward me. Um, I've certainly worked with more difficult divas. <laughs> we'll leave so it you, that. Got, you got the best of her. That's good to hear. I think so, yeah. Because I, I was helping her. I think if I was um, hindering her, I might have felt the opposite. Yeah, well, she's nothing if not an opportunist. She knows what side <laughs> her bread is buttered on. <laughs> Douglas, we, we love you beyond our ability to articulate it. But thank you so much for sharing of your incredible intellect and your even bigger heart with, with all of our gazers. Thank you for having me. I want to show you I pulled tarot right before I came here and temperance was the card that I pulled for this check. I love that. Aww. Well, and I think about temperance as like how we make the impossible possible. And also like we were talking about like that which is ineffable in music and also that which is totally technical. And and even understanding the technicality of it doesn't take away from the magic when it happens. Amen. Yeah, you're blending like the soulful and the practical, right? Mm. This is something beautiful. How can the children find you if they if they wanna if they're like I don't care how much it costs I need I need lessons from this human or just or... want to follow the journey? Yeah, exactly. Peck. I'm down for both of those. I'm at Douglas Peck D O U G L A S P E C K on Instagram, and my website is dougpeckmusic.com. Thank you so much, babe. We really appreciate you. I love, love you guys. I'm so happy to be here. I hope your listeners had a good time hearing us. So a big thank you once again to Douglas Pack for love you. having that gorgeous, gorgeous, very vulnerable conversation with us. And we are going to head into this episode's tarot card. So just take a moment, get connected, and you can reach out into the cards by listening into the sound of them being shuffled and just trusting that this message will resonate no matter the future place or time to which you listen to this episode. Just asking for one card, one message, one teaching, a healing, a joke, a giggle, whatever we need to help us move through the energies at play. Oh my God, it's the star. Hey, star. It is a healing. It is. Oh. The star is connected to Aquarius, and there are still planets in Aquarius, despite our being in Pisces season. We know Aquarius is the big dream. Not just the big dream for your life, but the big dream for humanity. Where we're all headed, the species. And not even just the human species, but all of us that live here on Earth together. The star gives us perspective. It connects us to the big picture. And it pulls us out. It almost like plucks us from the mundanity of our life and allows us to have a deeper understanding, a more like global, holistic context of where we are. The hardest thing about the star is that you have to create some time and space in order to engage with it because it is so far out. When you're 20,000 feet above sea level, looking down at the patterns, you can't also be down on the surface of the earth looking up you have to choose in this situation and the star is also like touching the waters the waters of healing the waters of truth the waters that connect us all 
And that's where it's kind of the bridge between Aquarius and Pisces in some way. And you can see that she's almost bridging between the earth where she's pouring water out and the pool that she's got her foot in. So it's being connected to the dream, but not being completely immersed in the dream like we are in the moon. In the moon, which comes after the star, like we can't find our way back because we're, we're so lost in all of the invisible. But in the star, we're reconnected with the truth of who we are that's bigger than the box you're kind of put into. We were talking earlier, right, about like how we would define ourselves if we were speed dating. And the star would be very bad at that too. The star would say like, well, I'm all of these things and I'm more. I'm the things that I haven't even discovered that I love. So my wish for all of us is that as we move forwards into the waters of these next two weeks, that we create some time for healing, that we create some time to be reunited with the wholeness of who we are outside of this time or this culture or whatever small box you've been living in. And I would encourage everyone to invite the star in. If you have a tarot deck, pull the star out. Put her on your altar. Put her by your bed. Just start to engage with her and see how she can deliver you some deep healing, some wholeness, and some peace. And so it is, and so it shall be done. So it is. Speaking of healing, we are hosting an in-person half-day retreat at the end of March. It's a Sunday. It's called Freeing the Inner Healer. Inner Healer. Inner Healer. And we're going to be using astrology, particularly working with Chiron. We'll be using animism and taking spirit trips and working with power animals. And it's essentially a playful but powerful opportunity to reclaim the healer that lives within you for your own good, but also for the good of everybody that you come into contact with. Because when you are radiating, that light is a blessing to everyone that gets to be a part of it. Even if it's just the girl that makes your coffee in the morning. <laughs> yeah, we're very excited to gather with everyone in person, in in actual life. Yes, uh, I-R-L. Yeah. Um, and to just generate some good healing energy amongst ourselves and, you know, gather in some community. So you can get all the information at our website, thespiritualgaze.com. Uh, and yeah, we hope to see you there. But if you aren't able to do IRL, because this is in Los Angeles, we're also going to be opening up our Wheel of the Year for registration for our next season, which is the deepening season. Mm -hmm. So we're very excited to grow some deep roots as we engage with spring here in the Northern Hemisphere. So that's a monthly meetup, uh, which also has like an optional intermediary meetups yeah um but it's a combination of breath work and tarot and astrology and all the things that we teach and practice and it's a place for accountability and magic making and community so we have an amazing group so far that some of some of them have been with us for six months now um and you can join us yeah so the portal is open come join us that's it you know where to find us mm-hmm. the spiritualgaze.com we love you thanks for being here And until next time, this has been your transit through the spiritual game.